Putin's security services are defined by paranoia of the Kremlin. The main task of these agencies is to uh, protect uh, the regime and the Kremlin. The Soviet State Security Service is more than a secret police organization. It's more than an intelligence or counterintelligence organization. It is an instrument for subversion, manipulation and violence, for secret intervention in the affairs of other countries. Those were the words of Alan Dulles, the longtime head of the Central Intelligence Agency under President Eisenhower. Welcome back to a new season of Uncommon Decency, where this week we are starting with a conversation about the Russian security services and the Czechist state that President Putin has created. Joining us for this episode was Andrei Soldatov, a Russian investigative journalist who's been covering the security services and terrorism issues since 1999. He is a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis and has written a number of books on the Russian state, including his most recent work, The Compatriots, The Russian Exiles Who Fought Against the Kremlin. In this episode, we discussed the structure and history of the Russian security services, their activities on the European continent, their role in the war in Ukraine, and some of the palace intrigue surrounding the potential blowback on the intelligence agencies, given that that invasion was botched. We also discussed potential successes to Vladimir Putin and got into some of the speculation around his allegedly ill health. We also went through a number of abbreviations, and intelligence agencies have a wonderful habit of using an alphabet soup to describe their different branches. So in this episode, you'll hear us talk about the KGB, that is the Cold War era foreign intelligence service. You'll hear us talk about the SVR, which is the modern Russian foreign intelligence service, the FSB, who are the domestic security service, the GRU, who are the military intelligence service, and the Wagner Group, who are a paramilitary organization. Still with me? Okay. Well, Andre will go into all of these groups and explain how they operate, what they do, and the rivalries and machinations between them as they vie for position in Putin's Russia. If you would like to hear more episodes from Uncommon Decency, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and send it around to your friends, family, and co-workers. As always, please rate and review Uncommon Decency on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can send us your comments or questions on Twitter at UndecencyPod or by email at UndecencyPod at gmail.com. Uh, please consider supporting the show through our Patreon, which will be linked in the show notes. Thank you for enjoying it, for listening to another episode of Uncommon Decency. Thank you so much for joining on Common Decency, Andre. I wanted to start with a sort of foundational question to help our listeners understand some of the topics we're going to talk about. So would you be able to walk us through the different branches of the Russian security services and sort of breaking down the, the acronyms that we're going to be hearing a lot about and what their roles are within the Russian state? Uh, thank you, Julian. Thank you for having me. Uh, well, the Soviet Union... Uh, which was uh, undoubtedly uh, a very uh, aggressive and uh, totalitarian state, uh, had two uh, foreign intelligence agencies. Uh, the chief 
uh, directorate, as a first chief, uh, chief directorate of the KGB or PGU in Russian, and the military intelligence uh, GRU or GRU uh, in Russian. Well, Putin's Russia has three intelligence agencies. Uh, the direct successor to the KGB foreign intelligence branch these days uh, is called the SVR or SVR in Russian, which stands for the Foreign Intelligence Agency. We also have the military intelligence, the GRU or GRU these days, just uh, chief uh, directorate of the general staff. And also we have the FSB. And the FSB is, of course, uh, mostly domestic uh, intelligence agency, but also it has a foreign intelligence branch, uh, which is uh, now is uh, the, probably the most aggressive uh, intelligence uh, agency uh, which Russia has. And this branch was absolutely instrumental in the starting of uh, the invasion uh, in 2022, mostly because uh, the FSB is, uh, by definition, uh, the main security agency in the country. These people called themselves the new nobility as early as in 2000, when Putin just became president. Uh, they still are uh, his uh, main uh, people he could actually trust and, uh, well, rely on doing many sensitive things in the country and outside. But, of course, Putin is uh, also a bit paranoid, so that is why he also has his, uh, I would call it a, some sort of Praetorian Guard, uh, the Federal Protection Service, or FSO in Russian, which is in charge of his personal protection. And within this agency, there is a smaller uh, agency uh, which is called uh, uh, the Service of Protection of the President. And these people are his bodyguards. Uh, we also have some minor agencies which are in charge of uh, protecting his Putin's bunkers, not only in Moscow, but across the country. Uh, there are strange things which came up uh, quite late like Rosgvardia or the National Guard, these people are in charge of mostly beating up protesters on Moscow and other cities uh, of Russia uh, streets. Uh, but the, the main security agency is, of course, uh, undisputably the FSB. Great. Well, this is, this is a very helpful uh, organizational chart that you've just drawn up, Andre, and, and uh, really is helpful in sort of um, launching us into our, our uh, survey of Russia's intelligence services. The next question would be, you know, what are those, what is the substance of these, uh, of these services you've just described? What, what do they engage in regularly? I mean, when we're, uh, the average listener will associate intelligence, the word intelligence with influence peddling, hacking, asset recruitment, sabotage. What are, what are these services uh, actually doing? And how and how do they differ from other uh, intelligence services across uh, the West? Uh, yes, probably it would be quite helpful to try to explain what is the main difference between the Russian security services and their mentality and the one uh, you have in the West. And the biggest difference is that 
Putin's security services are defined by paranoia of the Kremlin. The main mm-hmm. task of these agencies is to uh, protect uh, the regime and the Kremlin. And it goes not only for domestic agencies, which is quite natural for the countries uh, like Russia, but also for intelligence agencies. Actually, uh, if you look at the history of Russian intelligence agencies in the 20th century, you can see that from right from the beginning, I would say from the 1917 after the revolution, uh, the intelligence agencies were tasked to address the threat posed by Russian political emigres, because that back then was uh, deemed to be the biggest threat to Lenin and his, uh, his friends in Moscow. And I cannot say it is absolutely uh, unique. Uh, well, in many countries, uh, for instance, in the UK, you can uh, trace uh, the origins of the British intelligence to, say, as Elizabeth I uh, reign and, uh, well, Francis Walsingham was absolutely obsessed with the threat posed by uh, British emigrants, uh, uh, Catholics, and uh, what they could do uh, with political stability of the country. Uh, but the difference is that, uh, well, many years passed uh, since uh, Elizabeth I, and uh, Western security services, they, uh, well, they evolved, and of course, new challenges uh, emerged, uh, well, global wars, terrorism, all kinds of things. But Putin's Russia is still obsessed with uh, protecting the political regime in the country, mostly because of the feeling of insecurity, which is shared by many people, not only in the Kremlin, but also inside of the FSB or SVR on GRO. And uh, I, I know that uh, from my discussions with people inside, we have this historical trauma, I would say, in the country. Uh, the security services have big problem of explaining why, uh, in the matter of 100 years, two uh, big empires, uh, the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union, collapsed with no um, clear reason. And uh, they're trying to blame some forces from outside, but of course they admit that they believe that some small, really minor thing might start a new revolution. And that is why they need to be extremely aggressive at uh, addressing all kinds of threat to political stability. That is why this task was given not only to the FSB, but also to the SVR and GRO. And you can see that all of them are trying to do something with, um, say, subversive activity, as they call it, of, uh, for instance, Russian political emigres, especially now when we got this big exodus of the Russians leaving the country because of the invasion. And that uh, defines the mentality, and that defines the way they operate. They're extremely sensitive to all kinds of uh, threat to political stability. They believe it's more important than what you might think is quite natural for uh, a Western understanding of, uh, of, the, of intelligence, like uh, collecting 
are stealing secrets. Uh, you can say that the way Russian spies are trained is first and foremost, they need to think about stability of the regime and the country. And only after that, they need to do what all professional spies are supposed to do, uh, stealing secrets. When analysts talk about President Putin, one of the things that they like to stress, and journalists seem to talk about this all the time in documentaries uh, about the Russian president, they'll always stress his work uh, for the KGB in Berlin and how that's affected his worldview. Is there a particular ideology associated with the KGB from the latter days of the Cold War that we can sort of identify uh, and see how it's affected Russian policy today? Uh, yes, probably uh, it could be done. And I think it is this feeling of insecurity. Uh, the KGB and uh, the FSB in the 1990s, they still do not have a cohesive explanation why the KGB didn't save the Soviet Union in 1991. Uh, and of course, the reason for that is uh, that the history of the last days of the Soviet Union was extremely complicated. Uh, and of course, the collapse of uh, the Soviet regime started with, um, uh, with the weakening of the role of the, com of the Communist Party. The interesting thing was that back then the KGB uh, was uh, quite happy to get rid of the KGB of the of the Communist Party because uh, in the Soviet Union the only way to control the KGB was via the Communist Party. But these days now, uh, and I would say it's um, it's going on for thirty years. Uh, of course, the KGB and people from the KGB and people from the FSB now, they, uh, they cannot use this kind of explanation. So they think, and they are like, they're, they're believing in all sorts of conspiracy theories. Uh, because only by well, using conspiracy theories, you can explain how on earth could that happen that uh, the intelligence organization, which they still believe was the biggest and the most intellectual in the world, let it happen when, like, crowds of Moscovites completely destroyed the Soviet Union uh, in three days of August of 1991. And this feeling of insecurity and the lack of understanding what actually prompted this revolution is a defining moment uh, for the FSB and also for Putin, because Putin was not in Moscow uh, when uh, we had all these historical events. Uh, like uh, all these um, events of perestroika and Gorbachev, uh, Gorbachev's activity. He was somewhere. He was mostly in Germany. So he, he didn't understand what actually was happening in Moscow. How on earth all these um, new civic activities emerged, uh, where we got all these protesters and dissidents and liberals and Democrats. He missed all of that. And that made him even more paranoid. Because, again, he didn't and doesn't have a clue what actually happened and how the Soviet Union collapsed. Great. Uh, having said that, Andre, I think it is, uh, this is a really uh, good segue into our following questions. Just like Russia has been deploying its intelligence services to um, 
it towards and 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 uh, across really uh, all of Europe. So have the intelligence services of Europe sought to counter that influence. And uh, I wanted to ask you specifically about which countries do you think have been most vulnerable to uh, Russian espionage activities? You know, there's there's usually the sort of the running joke that Germany. You know, if you if you want the Russians to take something seriously, the joke goes, give it to the Germans and tell them it's a secret. Uh, is Germany still deemed to be the most vulnerable uh, country to Russian intelligence? And what are uh, some of the other vulnerabilities that you see across the European Union? Well, I would say that on tactical level, uh, Russian intelligence agencies are quite capable. And of course, they understood very early that you have more chance to um, penetrate the country if this particular country has uh, a big, um, well, I would say, involvement in, um, in Russian business with Russian businessmen and Russian economy. And of course, Germany is, is a country which historically uh, was extremely close to, to Russia. I mean, after 1991, uh, we all know that for many years, one of the symbols of Moscow uh, was uh, a symbol of Mercedes uh, on top of, uh, of, of, of the building, which is right across the Moscow River, uh, across the Kremlin. And everybody accepted that uh, as a sign that, look, of course, German business is uh, almost everywhere uh, in Russia. We, uh, we love German cars. Uh, we had lots of uh, German banks, uh, well, gas and, uh, gas and, and oil uh, goes to Germany. So these economic ties are extremely important. And then you have such a big penetration of business. Of course, uh, it's an opportunity uh, for, uh, for Russian intelligence agencies. The other thing is, uh, again, for historical reasons, because we used to have, I mean, the country, uh, Russia used to have a big uh, diaspora of uh, Germans in the country uh, starting in uh, uh, 18th century. Uh, many of these people were prosecuted under Stalin and uh, their descendants are uh, given the right to get back to Germany after the Soviet Union collapsed. And that uh, created this big opportunity for, for many former Soviet citizens to... Uh, move to Germany, and that created the biggest Russian diaspora in Europe. And of course, this is also an opportunity which you don't see uh, in Italy or Spain or in France. Just to quickly follow up on that, much is made of, say, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, and in particular, uh, the former German Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder's role, not only in getting that project approved, but then sitting on the board and the sort of quiet saying the quiet part out loud isn't really done by journalists, but it does appear to all intents and purposes that, you know, sort of Schroeder is a Russian asset or, you know, an asset in the terms of not that he's, you know, he's working directly for Russian security services, but that he is at least um, one of what Lenin would have described as one of their useful idiots. Um, is that the sort of political influence is that sort of political influence something that we're seeing in other countries as well, or is that sort of a unique to Germany? No, I don't think it is absolutely unique for Germany. Um, I think that uh, in some other countries in Europe, 
in the Czech Republic, uh, uh, in some other Central European countries, in Hungary, of course, um, in Italy, uh, you can see people uh, who might be called agents of influence. Yeah. That was a term used by the KGB in the uh, 1980s. Uh, but ironically, the KGB called the Russian dissidents uh, and Russian liberal politicians uh, agents of influence of the West. But now we have um, well, a different story. So I would say in many European countries, you might see politicians or very prominent businessmen playing this kind of role. And to be honest, I do not think that all of them are straightforward agents. Uh, many of them believe quite sincerely that while well, doing business for their country uh, is a good thing and why they should care about uh, political situation in, 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 in Russia and why they should care that uh, Putin's Russia is getting more and more aggressive and totalitarian as soon as it's not a threat to their country. The problem is that now everybody understands that it is a threat uh, for many countries, not only for Ukraine, uh, but maybe it's too late. And maybe people who well, spend decades arguing that it's fine to do business with Russia, they just don't know how to get out of this uh, very well, uh, weird uh, situation they found themselves in. How successful do you think Ukraine has been in uh, fending off uh, the incursions of Russia's intelligence services? It seems like the well, the ma mainstream media account is that they've been rather successful. Uh, do you agree with it? And in what ways do you think it could have been improved? Well, I think it is a bit more complicated than it looks like. Of course, we all see that, uh, given the fact that FSB played such a significant role uh, in the first stage of uh, invasion and they failed so miserably. And we also uh, heard, especially in the beginning of, uh, of the war, uh, that uh, lots of uh, Russian agents were arrested. And that, of course, um, leads us to think that uh, Ukrainian counterintelligence is extremely uh, capable and really they know what we are doing. But I think, first of all, we need to remember that uh, we do not know to which extent Ukrainian counterintelligence is working, uh, relying on the information they collect, and to what extent they rely on the information provided by uh, Western security services and intelligence agencies. We just don't know that. Uh, the other problem that uh, the Ukrainian security services are extremely how to put that uh, in a correct way. They're not really talkative about the people they arrested. Mm -hmm. uh, so we know a very little yeah. about what they actually know about the FSB and other Russian security services operations in Ukraine, uh, which is quite unfortunate. I understand it put me in a difficult position because I am a Russian journalist and now I'm sort of criticizing the Ukrainian security services, but it is, um, well, because I'm a journalist, uh, first of all, uh, that is why I think it's important to say that transparency is a good thing, uh, even during the time of the war. 
so I think that is why it is so difficult to assess how effective uh, the Ukrainian security services are. The debate over military support for Ukraine, and it was tanks, it's now jets, and I'm sure in a few months' time it will be something else um, that the Ukrainians would like and that Western countries are hesitant to give to them. Uh, it seems to be echoing a fear when we hear this debate that European countries are on the brink of going soft on Russia and confronting Russia. Uh, and, you know, you talked about trying to sort of unlearn this instinct of doing business with Russia and the Russian state and cementing these deep trade ties um, with Russia. Could the same case be made for counterintelligence? Because we you know, saw a lot of countries expel Russian operatives and uh, security services across Europe are trying to sort of step up their counterintelligence operations to protect themselves from Russian influence. But do you see uh, a case where perhaps, let's say when the war ends um, or as European countries tire, that this focus on countering Russian influence might wane and subside and Europeans sort of unlearn this instinct? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think these are two completely different things. Uh, while thinking about um, and the problems with um, given more of in terms of military support to Ukraine, well, at least I can understand some reasoning behind it. For instance, you might argue that, look, uh, how how well how many and how much we need to add to uh, finally to get to peace. And that's because this war is going on and on and on. And uh, unfortunately, it's quite possible that it can last for years. The problem is that lots of people now are arguing that, look, actually, we believed in the beginning that some sort of military victory uh, by Ukraine might bring us peace. Maybe it's not the case. Also, of course, there is an argument about uh, escalation. Uh, and I do not think that this kind of argument might be used to say, um, to forget about uh, the threat posed by Russian spies. Because it's not about escalation, it's not about the war in Ukraine on the Ukrainian soil, it's about the security of European countries. And uh, these days, I think that everybody understands in Europe that it is a threat. It's not going away, even, say, uh, if, say, uh, Putin loses this war and uh, lose Crimea or whatever. Uh, the country of more than 144 million people is still there. And you cannot, like, send them all to, uh, to Mars. It's impossible, right? So this threat is... Um, it's going to be there for years and decades, and it's going to be a threat, uh, unfortunately, for me as a Russian citizen still. Uh, but it is what we have, and we're going to have that for many, many years. And that means that um, it's a threat posed by subversive activities uh, conducted by Russian spies, uh, and of espionage of all kinds, uh, because we also tend to forget that, that industrial espionage now is getting more and more important for uh, for Russia because of the sanctions, which are mostly technical and technological, which means that Russia needs to find this technology we cannot buy officially and legally. 
it's it's about so many threats, and these threats are not for again for Ukraine. It's for everybody uh, in Europe. Just to sort of follow up on that, and in particular with regard to Ukraine, there was a report uh, recently, although not in a newspaper, about operations being conducted within Russia, particularly sabotage operations. And given the steady escalation of involvement by, say, the United States and other European countries, I just wonder, do you think we'll start to see more um, offensive operations by the uh, Western intelligence agencies in cooperation with the Ukrainians inside Russia as this war continues? Well, I think that what we've been seeing uh, over the last few months, um, I think that it was activities of Ukrainian security services. And I do not think that these actions, uh, these operations were conducted in cooperation uh, with, uh, say, Western intelligence agencies because of course, everybody understands in the West that we, there is a problem of, of escalation. We do not know how Putin might react to, uh, say, to, uh, to some sabotage activities uh, in Russia. And uh, well, Russia is still a nuclear power, uh, which is a problem. Um, but I think it makes total sense from the Ukrainian point of view to try to escalate more because they are in a desperate situation and uh, when while uh, European countries might talk about escalation well it is already a big escalation for Ukraine uh, for them it's it's a question of uh, of survival uh, so we I understand their reasoning why they are doing that but I do not think that they uh, always tell they partners in the West about the operations we are planning. Well, we'll have to bring you back on in the future uh, if it looks like Putin might be pushed aside uh, for an episode speculating on new Russian state and potential replacements uh, for him. Andre, thank you so much for this fascinating and detailed conversation, uh, not only about the Russian security services, but also uh, about Russian politics itself and the characters that we keep hearing about in the news uh, and sort of enlightening us about their true role and place and future in Russian politics. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, uh, you know, this is uh, the outro segment of the episode. Andre is out now. And uh, Julian, I thought this was a tremendously interesting episode. Uh, I just want to remind our audience that way back in the first season of the show, we had wanted to do an, an episode with an author, uh, Catherine Belton, who's a reporter of the Financial Times, who came out with a book a couple of years ago called uh, Putin's People, How the KGB Took Back Russia and Then Took on the West. And it really uh, zeroes in uh, the sort of the uh, thuggish uh, intelligence uh, methods and practices that are deployed by Russia, which are very uh similar to the ones deployed uh, in, in the USSR. And I think in one of your questions, there was actually a really interesting angle to approach this, which is that, uh, you know, genuinely, um, sorry, generally, um, democracies, democracies have been a lot more uh, shy in the way they use intelligence than autocracies, right? And, and there's a growing chorus of people uh, urging the West to sort of wise up 
and do uh, practice more of what uh, uh, scholars call defending forward, which means that you're not only uh, countering the uh, the um, uh, subversion of foreign intelligence services such as Russia's, you're also sort of attacking them before they attack you. And I think that's part of a paradigm shift that you're seeing now with the war in Ukraine, where um, where, uh, well, not only with, with the war in Ukraine, but certainly uh, the trend is accelerating. You're seeing more uh, countries uh, willing to uh, to sort of deploy uh, intelligence uh, methods and practices to gain intelligence about Russia uh, and, and be better equipped uh, to deal with its uh, posturing. Yes, it's an aspect that was fading a little bit from being in vogue in how Russian government, sorry, how Western governments use uh, the intelligence services in contrast to how the Russian government uses them. And part of that uh, really actually stems from the terrorist attacks on September 11th and the significant shift towards counterterrorism activities uh, and sort of the disruption of terrorist networks around the globe, as opposed to that nation state against nation state intelligence operation, where that sort of dropped out. Some of the Russia experts dropped out of the security services um, because it was Arabic speakers were the ones who were needed, uh, people with experts on all these terrorist groups in the Middle East, North Africa, and indeed Central Asia, um, were what intelligence agencies were hiring for. But we are starting to see that shift, um, not only in the United States, but in Europe as well. And from in one country, I can sort of spotlight in particular, uh, the United Kingdom, their security services have spent, well, gosh, 17 years uh, attempting to get the British government to take the threat of uh, Russian influence seriously. And it took an, the full invasion of Ukraine um, to actually get the government to sort of wake up to that reality. The irony being that Boris Johnson, the former prime minister, uh, was attempting to suppress a report on Russian influence uh, and then suddenly became the greatest cheerleader for Ukraine among European nations. So we are seeing that shift in focus and emphasis, and it has been enabled by the conflict in Ukraine. And I think we'll continue to see those more, as you put it, um, defensive forward aspects to intelligence work. But one thing that I, Andre spotlighted that I think is very interesting is the evolution of the security and intelligence services branches in their respective countries is very different. So for Russia, uh, its origins coming from the totalitarian czarist structure and then evolving in a Czechist state under the Soviet Union. And now with uh, President Putin and Putin's Russia, the strength of the security services in every aspect of society. Um, that is a very different outlook. And one thing that he spotlighted in, in particular was the role of Russian emigres and indeed the certain paranoia about the influence that emigres can have on the domestic state. So whether it's Stalin assassinating Trotsky while he was in Mexico, uh, whether it was Lenin's fear of uh, Russian emigres outside of the country potentially destabilizing the revolution because he himself had been a Russian emigre who came back and destabilized the ruling state. And now to Putin today, um, whether it's the attack on Litvinenko, on Skripal, um, and now the mysterious deaths in hotels of various Russian oligarchs. The security services are focused on controlling their population within the borders and overseas. And that can give an impression that the Russian agencies are, I guess, more adept at some of these 
operations, but it's just the fact that they're more brazen about it because that is a core part of their mandate. Whereas, you know, the United States, even though Edward Snowden is living in Moscow, the CIA isn't assassinating him. Um, and, you know, the British don't take out uh, defectors or people who leave the United Kingdom to go work in other countries. Um, that's something that the Russians do, whereas the British and Americans uh, and other European countries don't do that sort of thing. So while we are seeing a shift in emphasis, I think it's also important to note that the prominence of Russian security activities around the globe is a reflection of their origin, character, and core mandate. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, do you see a similar shift happening uh, with regards to China's uh, intelligence services? Do you see that it seems like China's uh, posturing in uh, in the South China Sea and Taiwan is also prompting much of the same sort of uh, wisening up uh, in in the West? Do you see that happening? So yes, the China the reaction to China is an interesting one to watch and will be for the next few years um, because typically it had just been seen as intellectual theft through hacking and so china was seen predominantly as a cyber threat uh, although we're starting to see uh, more coverage and more focus on the political influence peddling and i guess we'll start to see um more of the perhaps more brazen uh operations that the russians do we already know that the chinese surveil quite intensely um, Chinese citizens who leave the country and work and operate overseas, uh, particularly students who go overseas uh, to see that they're not involved in any dissident activity. And I think we'll start to yeah. see uh, a greater focus on rebutting that, uh, perhaps in a more defensive forward posture. Australia has been quite aggressive in trying to assess the potential intelligence risks from uh, Chinese students at their universities. The United States is doing that more and more as well. It was a big push under the Trump administration, um, although there is uh, a tinge of racism uh, to the way it is applied to any Chinese student coming to the United States, that Western countries have to manage um, the sort of tension between their principles on civil rights and equality before the law um, and equal protection against a security need to protect um potentially valuable trade secrets and security secrets from leaking into the hands of potential adversaries uh, such as the Chinese. So I think it's going to be a big focus and it'll be an interesting to see how countries coordinate and take that on. We're seeing the technology sharing through AUKUS, um, but I think we'll start to see uh, perhaps more integrated uh, response, especially in Europe, which just hasn't really grappled with the threat of Chinese espionage um, in large part because it's so focused on A, counterterrorism, B, Russia, that China sort of relegates to third place. But China's espionage operations in Brussels in particular are very significant and very well established. So it will be something to watch um, to see how uh, Europol and European intelligence networks uh, coordinate to counter some of those Chinese efforts. Yes, and I think the the uh, particular sort of um, oddity about uh, China is that uh, from some of the reporting that I've been lucky to do, uh, specifically for Peace for Newsweek recently, I have found out that China uses its uh, expatriate communities rather heavily. It leans on 
Chinese nationals living abroad uh, who may be you know, friendly to the regime uh, uses them as a launch pad to browbeat dissidents, right? Uh, when it knows that a dissident or someone who is uh, a no, someone who is sort of a perceived as a danger to the regime, uh, the uh, China has actually been building, setting up these overseas police stations, is what they're called, and it's essentially a parallel uh, policing system which operates in countries such as mine, Spain whereby China uses the expatriate community in Spain to uh, uh, to sort of um, surveil and browbeat uh, dissidents. So that's what makes it, I think, a little more uh, complex in China's case. But regardless, I think this was a tremendous episode. Um, I think folks will also be interested in, in listening to some of our earlier episodes about the war and about Russia generally. Um, but, but anyway, uh, this has been a very interesting one to do. Julian, I, I appreciate it. And, um, and see you next week. See you week. next week, Jorge. Thank you so much for joining me for this one. And thank you all for tuning in and listening. Be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast. You can also sign up for our Patreon uh, at Uncommon Decency. Uh, and please share the episode with your networks on Twitter. Tag us on Twitter if you're going to share it on Twitter so that we can continue to get the word out uh, about the podcast and some of the exciting episodes that we have. Wonderful. <laughs>